Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Perspective on time is a key component in life and in history. The Battle of Gettysburg, the turning point in the American Civil War, played out over three days. The Cuban Missile Crisis and the height of nuclear tension in the Cold War, 13 days in 1962. The first Persian Gulf War of 1990, where coalition forces freed Kuwait from Saddam Hussein, was a mere 42 days. Olympic athletes train their entire lives for races that take less than 10 seconds. Time, a concept that defines our lives and that perspective puts its unique stamp on it. While this story centers around time, it's more appropriately a story that revolves around survival and determination. Lost in the South Atlantic, alone, on a makeshift raft, a young sailor is adrift, with no way to navigate and no way to signal for help. He must endure nature, the elements, and his own internal struggles. On this episode of The Missing Chapter, a real-life castaway in his harrowing tale of survival, Lost at Sea. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Missing Chapter podcast. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Today's brew, Phil is from a friend of ours, Chris Bauer, who does our introductions for us. And it's the Saratoga uh, Coffee Traders Fair Trade and Organic Spack Attack Dark Roast. That's a mouthful. Uh, it's a whole bean roast. And I tell you what, it is uh, highly caffeinated. It's flowing through our veins. And when you talk about a high octane episode like this one, this is surely fitting. Yeah. Any description on a coffee that says highly caffeinated is definitely going to catch our attention. Oh, yeah. Without and for those of you that aren't familiar with Saratoga and the Saratoga Springs area, SPAC in reference to the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, which is a great open venue to see a concert uh, or, or any sort of a performance. It's a great place to spend a, a summer evening. And Phil, I think, um, you know, as we look forward to summer, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about how you know, we, we really have so many different topics that we want to make sure that we incorporate into stories. And the question to us, you know, comes up quite often. How do you guys, you know, come up with all these stories? Are you worried you're going to run out of stories to tell? And the answer is really not, we're not even close. Yeah, I'm amazed true. that we keep coming up with these, these amazing untold stories, and I'm glad we do. But just a reminder to everybody who, who enjoys listening to our podcast is that even though the summer's coming up and Phil and I uh, are fortunate enough to you know, being at home with the family on vacation, um, you know, keep listening every week. We're going to release a new episode and and uh, continue to entertain you guys throughout the the nice weather months here in the upstate, yeah, upstate and, area. And we love we love getting emails and, um, you know, messages online from from our listeners suggesting topics, suggesting stories. Hey, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Some of our, our episodes, especially mm-hmm. in season one, came from people just having conversations with us. Hey, did right. you ever hear about this? And so. Um, and we got a lot of things coming down the pike too. We're, we're welcoming more students on. We, we have a couple of uh, connections that we want to pursue um, to get some guests on our podcast. So we're looking forward to that. And speaking of looking forward to something, this episode has really uh, sparked my curiosity, Phil. So the intro alone, I think, will, will reel people in. 
Um, I think this is a topic where there's a lot of, I don't know, uh, miscommunication around mm -hmm. uh, that specific topic. But I think there's also not a lot of emphasis on this this time period. So I, I love the fact that you're you're tapping into this. And of course, the, the the character you're mentioning, I've never heard of and I've never heard of this story. So take it away. Yeah. And, you know, Phil, I think one of the themes that's resonated through a year and a half, a season and a half of our show is just perseverance and what humans are capable of under amazing set of circumstances. And as I read this and I did the research, um, I'm going to touch on some things that I came across and, and more notably things I didn't come across. All right. That, that I'll explain a little bit later on. But my story today revolves around uh, a young man by the name of Poon Lim, who was born in Hainan, China in 1918. He'd always enjoyed sailing. And despite being poor, he did whatever he could to spend time on the water or near the water growing up. And eventually he took a position aboard a British vessel as a cabin boy when he was only in his teens. Unfortunately, he was treated rather poorly and the overall experience pretty much swore him off ever boarding another ship. Mm -hmm. Two years later, though, uh, the world's engulfed in World War II. It's 1941 and the British Navy is finding itself struggling with numbers after losing many of its sailors to death and injury in the war's early years. So the British put out a call for seamen from China where they'd established a sphere of influence in the years leading up to World War I. However, unlike their British counterparts, any Chinese volunteers who did enlist were immediately forced into very uh, subordinate roles, little in the way of training or upward progression. And pretty much they were forced to accept jobs that British veterans had refused. Limit decided to move to Hong Kong around this time to pursue a degree in career in engineering. And it was here in Hong Kong that a relative in informed him of the British Navy's request for new sailors. And while hesitant at first because of his previous experience, Lim made the fateful decision. He was convinced largely due to Japan's invasion of China during the war, his desire to defend his homeland, that he would go back and re-enlist. See, and this is the part of the, of the, the story that I don't, I don't think a lot of people understand because when you think of the British military, British Navy, you wouldn't ever consider them seeking help from someone else in West China. Right. So I think that's the part of the story I, I'm just fascinated by. Because I, um, you know, you forget that these spheres of influence existed. Right. And and for them to reach out to a Chinese counterpart, that's that in itself, I think, is a remarkable. Right. Story. And we, you know, it, it also lends itself to the idea that World War II really was all globe engulfing in that, right. you know, because the Japanese had invaded China, you know, kind of a theater of World War II that we we forget about, um, you know, the, all of a sudden the Chinese are into this war as well. I mean, it's not just U.S. and the Allies versus the Nazis and U.S. and the Allies versus the Japanese, but the Chinese are, are very much a part of this as well. So in October of 1942, Poon Lim was assigned to the SS Benlamond and boarded the British armed merchant ship as the second mess steward. The vessel set sail from Cape Town, South Africa, to the Brazilian coastal town of Paramiribor. It sailed with a crew of 54 men unescorted, which means it didn't have any sort of surrounding vessels to protect it. And despite being armed, it was relatively slow moving compared to other vessels in the British Armada. Okay, so all of these are gonna play a role in eventually what happens. On the 23rd of October, in the late hours of the night, the Ben Lamond was spotted by the German U-172 U-boat, 750 miles east of Bellum, Brazil. This was unprecedented, given the location was outside European military zones. U-172 was under the command of Carl Emmerman, 
It performed a torpedo attack on the Ben Lamont by firing two torpedoes into her side. Like I said, about 750 miles, it's estimated, east of the Amazon River in Brazil. The impact made the ship lean to her side. Several boilers in the engine room exploded, and the ship sank in a mere two minutes as a oh result. My God. Two minutes. Remarkably, and you look back, Phil, on points in your life where it's like, wow, I can't believe, I mean, what a turning point this is in, in this story and in his life. Remarkably, within those two minutes, Lim was able to grab a life jacket before the ship sank, and he was taken under the water by the force and the suction, along with the majority of the crew. By using the life preserver and kicking frantically, Lim managed to flow back up to the surface. Looking around, trying to catch his bearings, he saw five fellow crewmen in a small wooden raft. As Lim started to swim toward it, the German sub surfaced and took the men aboard, presumably for questioning. In a bizarre set of circumstances, after a few more minutes, the same five men reappeared from inside the U-boat and were placed back on their raft. <laughs> however, however, before Lim could reach them a second time and try to climb aboard their raft, the U-boat dived below the surface and in doing so, disturbed the surrounding sea so much that both the raft and its five occupants disappeared, never to be seen by Lim again. By his own account, Lim was now the lone survivor in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean of the SS Bendemond. This is... <laughs> Right. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's the first, you know, three or four paragraphs of the story. Oh, my God. So, I mean, just a bizarre series of events, to, to say the least. Right, right. I mean, this one attack happens, but then the, the circumstances that surround it, the fact that he's able to grab a life jacket in the two minutes, the fact that he sees, um, you know, a raft, a makeshift raft with other survivors, but those survivors don't make it because the 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 sub that, you know, torpedoed them resurfaces, question, questions the men. And then destroys them in their raft when it, you know, leaves. Uh, yeah, like, it's tough to even fathom. You can't put yourself in that position. Like the, the ebbs and flows of this story already, because you got you're putting yourself in his shoes and you're thinking, oh my god, I survived. Right. And then right. you know, there's there's that element of like, all right, I'm here, I'm, I'm yeah. back. And then you have to you have to reconvene and, and kind of regroup and plan mm -hmm. plan B, C, D. Um. So now he's at the point where he's in the middle of the ocean by himself, by so, himself, completely alone. As you were saying that. I, I had to go to our friend Google and I had to look up how long without food and water would a person be able to survive on the, mm -hmm. on the ocean. All right. So you may have, I may be jumping the gun. Here. No, you're not. No, not at all. But according to uh, some survival experts, without food and drinking water, a person stranded at sea will most likely not be able to survive more than three days. Three days. Yeah. And, and here's the thing too, Phil, is you have to overcome the shock of what's going on. Right. Yeah. And then rather than panic, rather than just give up hope, you have to say, okay, what am I going to do? I have to have some sort of a plan. I have to put this plan into, you know, effect because yeah, I'm, I'm, it's exposure to the elements. It's, you know, predators in the water. There's all sorts of things that, that this guy has to take into consideration. That's a good point because immediately we think of food and water. Right. You know, our, our spoiled Western selves with with abundant amount of, of both of those things, we're thinking to ourselves, well, what do we do for food and water? I mm -hmm. can't go without like, you know, two hours without eating. Yeah. But for, for like you said, the elements itself, the sun, the heat itself right. is is deadly. Um, I, I, 
I mean, three days is kind of like that magic number in my head. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to encourage the listeners to kind of consider that three day mark being that turning point. But I, I'm wondering if as the story unfolds here, I, I'm curious to see if you mentioned whether or not this is just mere human survival instinct or is this military training? Which it's it's going to be, I think, a lot about what he what made him up personally, because okay. he didn't receive a lot of the training because of his ethnic background, ah. because he was Chinese. They just gave him pretty much a duty aboard this ship that was you didn't have, need a lot of skill, a lot of training for like it. a hired mercenary. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, as I went through and did this research, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what it was, because at any given point he could have given up and you could understand it. Right. You know, the obstacles that he's that he's trying to overcome. But the one thing I mentioned, Phil, and I'll, I'll keep coming back to in all of the research I found, never once did it talk about how he was starting to give up hope. Wow. And, and you know, considering anything other than how do I survive to live the next 24 hours? That's amazing. So after two hours of swimming through oil and wreckage in the open South Atlantic uh, waters, Lim came across one of the ship's rafts. Now, when we say rafts, and we're going to post these pictures on social media and on our website, you have to think about, you know, boats having, um, you know, you think of like the Titanic, you know, in case of an emergency, you have life rafts. And those are like structured boats. These life rafts are pretty makeshift, mm -hmm. but they're the, the vessel they were on because it was a merchant ship did have several of these. So he's fortunate enough just by chance after two hours to come across this very kind of rickety uh, life raft, but it's something. And the key here is it's eight foot, it's wooden. It was filled with some limited supplies. It included a 40 liter jug of water, several tins of biscuits, a flashlight, two smoke pots, a bag of sugar, some chocolate, and flares. So for all of his bad luck, this is a huge piece of good luck that not only did he discover something that floats, but it was also equipped with some pretty valuable pieces of equipment. And now at this point, he's probably just thinking rationing. Exactly. You know, he doesn't have any idea right. how long he's going to be out exactly. there. Exactly. You're thinking, okay, maybe if, I, if I'm lucky a day, a week, you know, I'm certainly, I'm not going to tell you how long he's out in the open water yet. But I don't think he'd anticipated to be out there this long. So that magic number of three is probably with those kind of supplies. You can maybe, I don't it's know. It's manageable now. Manageable? Yeah. yeah. He's giving, he, he's, he at least has hope. But this was nothing short of a miracle that he, that he, you know, came across this raft. He not only had a floating raft that was rather large, relatively stable, but all of these supplies that were already on board. And it was nothing less than divine intervention. The raft was also equipped with a canopy that provided Lynn with vital, much needed protection from the blazing hot sun. Yeah, that's right? something that's else huge. you might not necessarily yeah. think of, right? Once these initial supplies ran out, Lim used his amazing ability to adapt to ensure that his survival uh, by fashioning the remnants of these materials into valuable life-saving tools. Along with his life jacket, he used anything he could to collect rainwater to drink. So he actually put out the life jacket to to collect rainwater and then he would he would drink from that. He used the wire from the flashlight and some of the rope from the raft to fashion a makeshift fishing hook to begin catching fish. A nail was modified from the raft and used to lure and catch larger fish, something that we'll, we'll come back to and will play a much crucial role in his survival a little bit later on. When the fish were successfully caught, Lim gutted them, prepared them using a crude knife. We'll, we'll put that in air quotes. It's not really a knife, but it's sharp enough to cut. Made from the biscuit tins 
Oh my gosh. Right. That he'd salvaged and hung them to dry from the canopy of the raft. When things got desperate, he turned to eating seabirds, which turned out to be rather plentiful. And we're always swooping in close to examine and find out more about his floating camp. By all accounts, Lim took every precaution he could into consideration and did what he could to avoid any unexpected accident that might prove deadly. By his own admission, he wasn't a very strong swimmer, so he tied a rope from from the boat to his uh, wrist or his waist anytime he left the raft. And this ensured he wouldn't be uh, drown if he'd accidentally fell into the water or that his raft would float away unexpectedly from him. The swimming turned out to be also vital. Not only did it keep Lim from becoming overwhelmingly bored, but it kept his body and muscles in shape and helped maintain his surprisingly good health day after day after day on the open waters as these turned into weeks and eventually months. Oh, my God. One day, there was a particularly bad storm, and this is probably the most harrowing part of Lim's entire ordeal and is an extremely important turning point. Lim barely survived. Again, fortunately, he tied himself to his vessel. But everything he had collected on board was destroyed and lost. The water, uh, the waves swept away nearly all of his supplies, including all of his fresh water that he'd collected, uh, the fish he'd caught, in desperation to quench his thirst. And this gives you an idea. We use the word desperation. This is desperate. He manages to catch and kill a bird, a pelican or um, a seagull, which had uh, landed on his raft. He drank its blood in order to satisfy his thirst. Come on. So the bird offered very little in terms of nutrition. And Lim was really starting to feel the early effects of starvation at this point. Not to mention that his morale was starting to dip. Now, it, how, it was a lo- it was at a low. How far into this? Um, over a month. Oh my god! Over a month, and I think that the thing here is that he had he'd endured it. Um, you think about how long a month is. We always talk about how long March is, right? right yeah, as I teachers, know. but I think when you lose all those supplies, you you ha- despite being very, you know, upbeat. It, it had to be very discouraging. See, in the way I'm envisioning this, I'm envisioning this all taking place in the daytime. Mm-hmm. And you forget, like, it's not, right. You know, right. Th- he's going through pitch black darkness. How is yeah. he able to, to you know, cope yeah. with that, that mental aspect of this? And then he gets through that, that those rationings. And he's probably keeping himself, if he's, if mm-hmm. he's smart, which he obviously is, he's probably keeping him at the edge of just living right because you want to ration them so to, to really extend out that that time period so he's at about 30 days right now is what which you're is saying amazing 30 which is, days which is 10 times than what i said right. earlier three days so when when you're talking about this my my brain is thinking all right with those kind of rations maybe a week maybe mm-hmm. 10 12 days two weeks let's say yeah. you're you're talking about an entire month so far absolutely and and you know at this point again his morale is is low but rather than giving up okay he collects his thoughts again. He decides the best course of action that came into his mind, at least to alleviate the hunger, which at this point he says is, is really what's it's keeping him from having a clear head. He needs to kill something a little bit larger, and he focuses on killing a shark. So using the deceased bird, whose blood he drank, as bait, Lim manages to lure a shark onto his hook, which he made out of a second nail from the raft, and was able to haul the shark aboard. And it measured approximately about three and a half feet in length, which is good size. Yeah, three and a half feet. Size, yeah. Using a half full jug of seawater, he still had the jug. He filled it with with seawater. He bludgeons the shark in the head a few times in order to subdue it. Then, using the same nail, 
he manages to cut open the fish, drink its blood straight from its liver to satisfy his thirst. Oh. All right. And it hadn't rained since the storm had washed away his supplies away. And again, like you said, it's not like any of this, I'm sure, is quenching his thirst or his his hunger, but it's allowing him to survive and continue on. So as I mentioned before, unfortunately, the raft didn't possess any navigational tools, which could help Lim figure out exactly where he was. He was completely at the mercy of, of the weather and the sea. So this presented, prevented him from trying to navigate his vessel towards land. Um, the only way in which he could survive his nightmare, uh, by his own thought, he, he had to be spotted, picked up by a ship at some of point. Of course, right. And essentially, luck was his only hope. But you're thinking he's this small eight-foot raft in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Exactly. What are the chances of that? Well, believe it or not, Phil, he'd actually been spotted on a few occasions by passing vessels. Uh, on, on several occasions, in fact. One day, an unidentified freighter, um, so picture in your mind some sort of a cargo ship, sailed past him. And despite him shouting out in English and waving and jumping, and doing whatever he could to get the attention of the sailors, they didn't stop for him. And, and Lim assumed that due to his Asian appearance, the crew was probably afraid that he was a trap for a submarine attack. So the crew decided to just, you know, leave him and you're on your own. But they didn't make communication. They with made him. communication with him. They acknowledged him, but they didn't stop. Oh, so no. they're thinking probably the circumstances of the war and what was going on, you know, during the time. They couldn't take the chance and, and possibly be the victim of a submarine attack. So for him, for his perspective, after all of these ups and downs, here we have the, the final glimmer of hope. You think you're done. You think you're, this is it. I've made it. And they, yeah. they sail away. And it's the frustrations are going to continue to come. The raft was spotted a second time by the United States Navy patrol planes, one of which actually dropped a buoy to mark his location for pickup. But unfortunately, before he could arrive or before help could arrive, rather, the storm that I told you about hit and totally threw the vessel off and the buoy separated from them. Oh. So there was no way, you know, if there was a rescue mission by the United States Navy, that was fleeting now too, because oh the, the buoy was gone. So that's, you know, again, you put this yourself in this poor guy's mind. I mean, nothing is, seems to, to be going his way right now. He also had an encounter with a German sub one identical to the sub which had sunk the SS Benlamont. The ship was in the area conducting anti-aircraft drills. Ready for this, Phil? They were conducting anti-aircraft drills by firing at seagulls and moving targets, <laughs> which is so me. bizarre and random to me. But the crew spotted the stricken sailor, but really just didn't seem too concerned by a man alone in the middle of the ocean on a raft. And after you know finishing the drills and doing what they did, they left. So it's difficult to say whether these encounters were encouraging or frustrating. But amazingly, in all of the Atlantic Ocean, Lim was being spotted. Yeah. You know, by, but, but obviously all of this is for naught because no one actually decides to rescue him. After nearly, here we go, after nearly, Phil, four months, one month turns into two months, two months turn into three, nearly four months of surviving alone on the ocean. Lim notices that the water around him is beginning to change color. Oh my. And the dark blue, which he was accustomed to seeing surround him, was starting to become lighter. And this starts to give him hope. Lim had a resurgence of strength, got a makeshift oar that he had built, and started paddling towards the lighter and lighter, more turquoise blue water. 
And after the break, I'll explain what this meant for Poon Lim and why this time at sea might finally be coming to an end. All right, everybody, we're back from the break. And I just got to tell you, Phil, this is uh, this is a really unbelievable story in the most literal sense possible. I do want to mention, because we talked about this during the break, the the coloration of the ocean water as he was getting closer to land, the fact that it was, you know, the deep blue as he was out in the, the deep ocean. And of course, as the as the ocean gets shallower closer to land, of course, that's going to be lighter. So for clarification reasons, I just want to mention that because Obviously, that's the glimmer of hope that he needed to get to land right. and, and survive this thing. Now, the question that I do have, and maybe you're going to address this, is that after spending a hundred and what is it? Thirty. It's, it's going to be a hundred and thirty-three days by that's, the time he reaches shore. One hundred and thirty-three days. So, you know, right around four months. So, in four months of of being by yourself, I mean, you are essentially like solitary confinement. Right. I mean, we we kind of brought this up during break. The idea that if we were to compare this to quarantine, you know, something that we all experience. If we compare this to quarantine, 133 days on your own in, in the most literal sense of you have no contact with the outside world. Right. And on an eight by eight raft, it really is, Phil, you're playing a game with your kids where, okay, choose a carpet in your house, choose a rug in your house. You can't step off of it. Yeah, that's true. You know, or you can only go a few feet off of it and then you have to return for 133 days. I picture Tom Hanks and Wilson. Like right, the, the, right. The mental Absolutely. element of the this. Castaway. Like, and, yeah. you know, it's weird because he's in the, the wide open water. Um, but for me, as I was doing my research, it was very, um, uh, you almost felt claustrophobic. Yeah. Because great... you are just in, you're in your own world. And I think you you probably lose track of time. You probably lose track of of what day it is. Um, but to continue to fight in the hopes that something will happen and you'll be able to continue living your life is is amazing in itself. Yeah, 100% a story of hope. And, and like you said, it's just, it's remarkable that a vast ocean, something so big can feel so confining right. and isolated. Yep. Um, I, I think my next question is, like, how do you go 100, 133 days, four months out in the open ocean and not wondering if you're going to make it the next minute or, or two Absolutely. and then just go back to normal life? Yeah. Or maybe you get to a point where it's like, listen, I've come this far. I'm I'm going to make sure I survive and right and and get to live. It's got to be for something. A Absolutely. I totally so, agree. So let's get to the, the last part of this. Like you said, Phil, the significance of the lighter shade of blue water, the water is eventually or. Um, slowly becoming more shallow, indicating to Lim that despite not being able to see the land, it had to be close by. Right. By his own admission, it was during this time that he got most nervous and frantic because he was worried that another storm might come along and push him further out to sea. And he knew at this point, like you said, there's a glimmer of hope, there's a chance of survival. 133 days after his ship was torpedoed and sunk, Poon Lim stepped ashore in Brazil to the backdrop of a thick, dense forest. You know, it, which is dangerous. It's not yeah. ideal, but his chances for survival certainly higher than in open water. He was found by Brazilian fishermen within a short period of time after that, who took him to the hospital where Lim recounted his story. It quickly became famous amongst military personnel and then the civilian population where he became a superstar in the newspaper. Lim spent about four weeks in the hospital. And even though he'd spent you know, nearly four months at sea, 
He'd only lost remarkably, Phil, 22 pounds during his ordeal. That's unreal. He was dehydrated. He was tired, but amazingly in relatively good health with no immediate pressing health problems. Was he a bigger guy or was he, I mean. No, if you look at pictures, he's actually pretty slight. Um, they attribute a lot of his health, though, to his swimming. And we said, you know, his, he was not a strong swimmer but it kept him active. It kept him moving. Um, and as it turned out that time spent swimming during his isolation had really stopped his muscles from doing any sort of, you know, breaking down, rotting away. Yeah. Something that usually happens, you know, when you're not, when you lack movement for long periods of time, which this certainly was. So thanks to this, he really didn't have any problems even walking shortly after he reached land. And then eventually after he left the hospital, upon leaving the hospital, Lim received transport to return to England. However, he stopped in the U.S. to share his story with some journalists there. Keeping in mind that throughout all of this, the world is still in the grips of a major conflict. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, true. We're still yeah. fighting the war. Uh, Lim eventually received the British Empire Medal from King George VI, and the Royal Navy implemented some of his techniques into training manuals for sailors. He also became a symbol of perseverance and fight for the British during World War II. So one of the things after all of this, from the beginning of this story to the end, there's some irony in that you had someone who was given a position, asked to volunteer, defend his country, defend the British Empire. Because of his ethnicity and his, and his Asian background, he's given menial tasks, the tasks that no one wants. But because of the ordeal and what he shows, the perseverance and his, his, his fight to survive, he becomes a symbol that the British Empire rallies around during World War II. That's amazing. It's remarkable. It is. I think it's I think it's remarkable too. not to interject, but, no. um, you know, the fact that when you were bringing up the, the swimming and keeping your muscles active, you know, you're worried about that atrophy with your muscles that it, they're just going to break down by by not using it. You kind of think that in the mental state, too. Right. You know, like if you don't have hope, then your mental state will atrophy mm-hmm. as well. So there's there's so much symbolism right. in that. Right. And, and here you are. It doesn't matter what his ethnic background was. Yeah. You know, he was recognized for how remarkable it was, you know, was that he survived this ordeal. Um, Lim would later emigrate to the United States. He used his fame to gain citizenship with the aid uh, from senators in the United States Congress. He was the only survivor of the SS Ben, uh, ben, Lom- ben Lamond. And he lived a quiet, unassuming life, you know, after his herring, or- herring ordeal and passed away eventually in 1991 in Brooklyn at the age of 72. Wow. So he was able to, you know, to live out his life. And it was... Um, from all accounts, like I said, a quiet, unassuming life, which I think it's kind of reminiscent of what he, the time he spent on his water. But, um, you know, he, he, he did fight for something and, you know, he was recognized for it and, and became a symbol and somebody certainly whose story needs to be recounted. Absolutely. You know, when you, those times of, of despair and loss of hope, you know, there, there's light at the end of the tunnel and there's something worth, worth living for. It's amazing. I think, um, you know, we tell our students sometimes that, you know, you could be walking by somebody in the mall or walking by somebody, mm-hmm. I don't know, in, in a store somewhere and you, don't, you have no idea the impact they might have on, on you or somebody else. And, right. uh, the, the unassuming nature of this, of this character, mm-hmm. you know, Poon Lim from, you know, all walks of life has, has an enormous impact, not just on the war, Right on on Great Britain, but on on us in the 21st century, it's um, the unassuming nature of of him and the unassuming nature of anybody has the power to really change the course of 
right. of a, an entire historic yeah. moment. And regardless of how bad things seem, you know, 24 hours later, they could be completely different. So you just have to fight from day to day. But um, yeah, a, a story that really resonated with me. And I, I think, um, you know, out of all the stories of World War II that people enjoy, this was a little bit different take and one that, that I'm, I'm hoping people aren't as familiar with and, and now can appreciate. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.